Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Dr. Deborah Burks found in Coronavirus Task Force meeting room covered in cobwebs. This is WBS News Radio. Members of the White House cleaning staff were alarmed Wednesday upon entering the meeting room of the Coronavirus Task Force, only to find Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Deborah Burks seated at the meeting room table, covered head to toe in cobwebs. Investigators believe Dr. Burks was waiting for a meeting to be convened for nearly three weeks. She just kept thinking it would happen. She'd get a call, come in, we're going to meet. So she wanted to be ready and be there already. But the days just kept going by with no word. Things soon turned desperate for Dr. Burks. Yeah, we think at this point that she survived by consuming Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, who had shown up due to a scheduling error. We found his wallet and keys hidden behind a potted plant. According to sources inside the Department of Health and Human Services, no one there noticed Azar was missing. This is WBS News Radio. And that was WBS News Radio. Breaking news, you might say, like the onion for your ears, brought to you by Jerome Halligan. And now on Arts Express. There is perhaps no more public figure associated with that classic Vietnam U.S. invasion scene from Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now back in 1979 and led by then-General Wesley Clark, along with, as NATO commander, the destruction and obliteration of the country of Yugoslavia. Though Clark seems to be sounding more like Karl Marx lately, quote, Government is not working for the American people, because when you let everything fall down to the profit motive, the big fish eat the little fish, unquote. And could this radical change of heart be due to the reverse principle of like son, like father? And his son, Clark Jr., has asserted, though with some humor, that he could have, quote, guilt-tripped his father into seeing things his way. Seemingly the opposite of his elder, Clark Jr. has been a host of the left-leaning The Young Turks and was part of veteran Stand with Standing Rock, the thousands of vets who turned up as water protector human shields against the Dakota Pipeline axis there during the Obama administration, and kneeling before the Standing Rock Sioux tribe elders asking for forgiveness. And father and son take our Arts Express hot seat on this show in connection with their appearance as subjects in the climate crisis documentary, Hot Money, an issue they both embrace. First, some scenes from Hot Money, then Wesley Clark and Clark Jr. And apologies for the sound quality for Clark Jr. phoning in as a two-way call to his father. Am I in the middle of some movie? What wealth you have can be eradicated in a matter of hours. Words can't describe it. What if there's another emergency that that arises? Then we have no funds. 
indebtedness of households, firms, banks, governments, the debts of all these actors in the economic system uh, have increased much more than GDP. We've got to change the way we're approaching our economic endeavors. How many people can insure one person's house? At some point, the emperors had just run out of money. Contagion. Economic contagion. Economic Financial. Contagion. Yep. It is sound currency because it is backed by actual good assets. These latent hidden climate risks that might exist in different housing markets, should they burst, could, could take down the entire financial system. We're rich! Energy poverty, lack of food, income inequality. Come on down to our luxury survival condo and don't let the Armageddon get you down. Can you have a society that's been as successful as this one has in a material sense, and can it transform itself? It's all rigged. People don't have an actual choice in a lot of stuff. You guys must have some wild conversations, yeah, so man. After 1980s, we thought, oh, Gordon Gecko's a great guy. He taught us greed is good. Nature is going to be eroding the foundations of our economy. documentary hot money general clark you seem to have changed quite a bit as we see in the film from commanding u.s and nato wars around the planet to being influenced by your son who's a somewhat anti-establishment anti-war progressive and presided over the very left-leaning young turks he's even joked that he quote guilt tripped you into seeing things his way what would you say about that I think that, you know, uh, he's living, he's come up in a different time of America than I did. And so when you're in the armed forces, you're in, your, you're in a cocoon of public service. Um, I went all over the world speaking on behalf of the United States when I was a, a senior leader in the Army. And yet when I came back to my own country and I was a civilian and saw it, and I listened to my son and his experiences, you know, there's a lot of things we could do better right here at home. And the film could not have, it seems, predicted the pandemic that was made before the pandemic. How would you factor in regarding its discussion about the economy that while this pandemic has left millions of hungry, homeless, and jobless, on the other hand, the rich have prospered during the pandemic to the tune of $93.1 billion, and they don't seem to care. So how would you relate that, which is not in the film, to what's going on? You want me to take West? that one, Either. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, what it is, you know, this disease is simply the leading edge of what we're going to be facing. This is one of many diseases that's going to emerge from everything from melting tundra to, you know, new croplands uh, from jungles that they're cutting down in Brazil and the Congo. You know, that the wealthier insulated summit for now financially is one of the problems we have in a society where the rich are able to get the laws passed they want because they're more or less insulated from the reality of these things for now. Well, Prairie, the other thing is that, you know, for 40 years in the United States, we've delegitimized the role of the United States government. And um, we're going to have to put government to work for the American people. Government is not working for the American people the way it should. I hope President Biden and the Democratic Party can bring this about because when you turn government away and let everything fall down to the profit motive, I mean, it's just human nature. Uh, the big fish eat the little fish, and so the wealthy get wealthier. And uh, we've got so many Americans, 70% of them with less than $1,000 in savings. They're one disaster, one accident, one injury, one sickness away from from financial bankruptcy or something terrible happening to them. We know we have to deal with this problem of inequality. And uh, the pandemic has brought it out. It's made it worse. And I think it's reinforced a determination to deal with it successfully. Some of the proposals I'm seeing coming out of 
the Congress right now would do that, like additional uh, money for people with children. That that helps. That'll reduce that proposal to provide thirty six hundred a year for children. That, that's supposed to uh, reduce child poverty rates by fifty percent. That's a good step in the right direction, in my view. Now. As a general and commander of NATO, what is your stand on the connection of the climate to war, which isn't pursued in the film? Just last month, Serbia filed lawsuits against NATO under your command for the use of depleted uranium, destroying land and leaving countless cancer-stricken victims. And in Vietnam as well, during your time there, dumping millions of gallons of Agent Orange, resulting in human deformities and deaths even half a century later and perhaps forever, and including U.S. military victims as well. So how would you factor in war to what's going on in this film? Well, I think what we have to do is we have to do everything we can to avoid conflict. And, um, and that, that starts with good leadership, diplomacy, and working with our allies. This is one of the things that was most disturbing over the last four years. Not only did we back out of the Paris Climate Accord, and, and, and walk away from negotiated agreements to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. But we, we, also, uh, we also didn't work with our allies in Europe. And, um, and, and, and this is, these are the kinds of issues that we have to correct if we're going to deal with climate change. Climate change is going to be the biggest issue humanity has ever faced. And um, as, as uh, Wes says in the film, we've got the technology we got the money. We just have to have the will to do it. So I think um, we've got to work together. We've got to prevent conflict. And we've got to pull mankind together to work on this overwhelming challenge that we're facing. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, we have to do this. I've got kids. Uh, my friends have kids. Everybody's worried about it. It's one of these things that an individual can't do on their own. It's going to take societal effort and government involvement. And General Clark, with all that in mind, the devastation of war on the environment and on human victims, looking back, would you have thought about doing anything differently? Well, first of all, uh, I always believed in public service. Uh, when I was a young man growing up in Arkansas, and um, President, uh, uh, um, President Eisenhower was the president, and Nikita Khrushchev was the leader of the Soviet Union, and came over to the United States and said, we will bury you. And like young people anywhere. I love my family. I love my home. I love my country. I felt a strong sense of patriotism. And so I did like a, a lot of my life to serving in the military. So I'm very proud of the work I did there. Some things didn't go well. The war in Vietnam, of course, nobody understood at the time what Agent Orange could do. But this is the problem with war is that there it has unintended consequences. And, um, Maybe we should have known. We've done our best, I think, afterwards to try to make amends. I think the same thing is true with depleted uranium. I think when it began to be used, people didn't understand how harmful it was. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to look at it this way. Um, throughout history, unfortunately, and we have to change this, but unfortunately, conflict and fear of conflict has driven technology. It's it took us from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. It brought steel in. It revolutionized the economy. And it brought a lot of hardship and pain on humanity. My hope is that in the 21st century, we can face larger challenges, like this challenge of climate change, and use that to spur technological innovation and human cooperation rather than technological innovation and conflict. And for each of you being part of this film, Hot Money, do you feel that it changed your perspectives in any way or affected you and your outlook? I don't feel like it changed my perspective in any way. I was really familiar with all the issues. I've worked mm -hmm. in renewable energy, and that's tangential to finance, and I've worked in politics and media and everything else. So I kind of know how the machine all fits together. What the movie is more or less shows you that money is the driving force behind what shapes our world. And it comes down to individual mortgages and car payments, credit card payments. And that's like the red blood cells of the financial circulatory system. And what people don't get is they're headed for a massive heart attack. 
because the system doesn't work in the long term. It's, I mean, trickle-down economics and a lot of neoliberal theory, what you're doing is you're borrowing from the future. And right now, the future is right here on our doorstep. And it's a big debt we got to pay, physically, in the environment, as well as financially. And did you feel it had any influence on the way you see things, being part of this film? I saw things. Look, uh, the film reflects a lot of the conversations that uh, that my son and I have in our family around the dinner table. We talk like this. We see it. You know, I came out of the military as a retired four-star general. I went into banking. Um, he came out of the military as a, a lieutenant and, and went into Hollywood. So he and I had different financial and economic experiences, and we would talk about these things and we would collaborate over the dinner table and um, it was a joy to work in the film with him and um, and see his passion. I'm very proud of my son. He he uh, is a strong believer in environmental activism. He led veterans to oppose the Keystone Pipeline at Standing Rock hmm. and uh, I go to access pipeline. But. <laughs> and, uh, and so, I mean, I think it's it's um, you know my generation is is we're we've got probably the last member of my generation in the White House right now. It's going to pass to younger people, and I think my son's a great representative of his generation and the kind of conscience that it will take to deal with the challenges that humankind faces in the 21st century. And in terms of the proposals that are made in the film, what about the wealthy? They don't. They don't seem to care whatever proposals come up. They just want to make money. What can be done about that? Well, we have this thing called government, <laughs> and it's able to levy taxes based on what people think and what we should do. Um, you know, but the first thing is most people don't realize how much money is at the top. And they have no idea. They, they look at somebody and they're driving a nice car, and they're like, oh, man, that guy's rich. And you don't know if that guy is massively in debt and just driving a nice car, and you think, okay, $100,000. There's people out there walking around with a billion dollars. And, you know, neoliberal economics and trickle-down economics and all this fake nonsense says, oh, it's this, you know, they're just creating the wealth. It's like coming out of thin air, but it's not. I mean, it, it really is. It's an economic pie, and they're just taking a larger and larger slice of it. But people don't really notice because most people aren't into math and most people are not into finance. And any last word on what to do about the wealthy? Well, I think that we do have to address the imbalances in society. Uh, we've had 40 years in which government has been systematically delegitimized. We turned over to the private sector back in 1981 when Ronald Reagan came in. He said, government's the enemy. Well, government isn't the enemy. Government sets the rules. Government assures that the competition for um, achievement is fair. It assures there's equal opportunity, and it provides a safety net for people. And I look forward to the time in the 21st century when there's so much wealth in mankind that we can move beyond people needing to acquire extraordinary wealth just to have a sense of security. Wealth should be used for purposes that advance mankind's common interests. And government should provide the safety net with all this wealth. There should, we're in a situation where no human being should be without food, clothing, and shelter. That should be the objective of the 21st century. And people should be working for their satisfaction, not just to put bread on the table. And we could do this. We're going to have to move step by step. And maybe climate change and dealing with it is the right engine to motivate mankind to look at the world in a different way. I hope so. Okay, well, thank you so much, both of you, for calling into the show. Our pleasure. Thank you very much, Barry. Now, there are some glaring omissions in Hot Money, as in assorted elephants in the room, amounting to lots of financial analysis, but low on solutions, say, a consideration of socialism in its wide-ranging critique of everything wrong with capitalism, another unheard word. 
And what about the environmental destruction of wars? Perhaps an unmentionable, considering the major presence of Clark Sr. in the film. Or bringing up Venezuela as a failed state environmentally, not because of the deadly U.S. hybrid warfare sanctions never mentioned, but rather ironically, measures taken against capitalism by Venezuela. And so, once again, the narrow vision of issue politics, and at the apparent service to empire, and for all its hand-wringing, leads to nowhere. This is Arts Express, and coming up next on the show, Bro on the Global Television Beat. What's up with The Mandalorian, Disney, and the dumping of Gina Carano? This is more than I signed up for. Looking for some work? It appears that introductions are in order. At least cover your tattoo. No need to flaunt it. Now! Ready for round two. I can't imagine there's anything living in these trees that an ex-shock trooper couldn't handle. Hey, I'm not scuffers. Come on. Thank you. Veteran. Come back soon. Come back soon. So what happens if you take that thing off? They come after you and kill you? No. You just can't ever put it back on again. That's it? So you can slip off the helmet and settle down with that beautiful young widow and raise your kid sitting here sipping spotchka? Spotchka. Well then, until our paths cross. Until our paths cross. Looking for some work? I'm in. Care to double the bet? I said stop! This is more than I signed up for. The space western The Mandalorian, not cancelled, but carnivore culture. Gina Carano, gun-toning warrior on screen, Trump supporter, and former wrestler known for her viciousness in the ring, was the Princess Leia of a broken-down generation, and hardened not so much to resist that neglect but to survive it in whatever way possible and not excluding the embracing of fascism. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Mandalorian Season 2. Not cancel, but carnivore culture. One of the surprise hits of the contemporary streaming era is the first original series on Disney+, Plus, The Mandalorian. A surprise not because it was a hit, any Star Wars spinoff is guaranteed to have a wide audience, but because of the magnitude of its popularity and the way it has penetrated the culture. This space western features a lone gunslinger and bounty hunter who befriends a timeless and seemingly helpless kid, a baby Yoda called The Child, and now named Grogu. The series was 20 times more popular than any other original series on Disney+, the third most popular series with 1,032 billion minutes viewed, and one of the Nielsen streaming ratings, which highly underestimate number of viewers, and crucial in Disney Plus surpassing 74 million subscribers worldwide in 2020, far beyond its initial goal of 60 million by 2024. At Christmas, an American workforce seeing its economy evaporate and stuck at home still spent heavily on toys. One of the crown jewels of the toy world was a giggling, babbling baby Yoda for $60, no less. And this year, Where whole film theater chains closed, the animatronic wonder was the only significant seller in film and TV merchandise. This green goblin, now a mascot for Disney+, threatened even to replace the angel announcing the birth of Jesus at the top of the Christmas tree. Part of the furor and adoration is warranted. The first season of The Mandalorian breathed new life into an atrophied franchise. The tale is set after the end of the first Star Wars trilogy, where the Empire has collapsed, but the budding Republic is weak and unable to pull together an unruly universe. Mando, in his quest to preserve and protect this powerful baby, 
visits a different planet each week, most with broken down governments and infrastructures. Season one was a fit metaphor for the imminent collapse of the U.S. empire, as its currency fault economy plummeted in a downturn accentuated but not caused by COVID. The individual planets with their barely surviving frontier systems of government looked a lot like failing American states in the aftermath of the Reagan-Bush-Clinton neoliberal onslaught finally done in by Trump. The words of the Mandalorian also echoed failed states around the world, as parts of the U.S. global empire collapsed with protests in Lebanon, Chile, Algeria. To say nothing of recent people's movements closer to home, in the Gilets Jeune in France, the Indignados in Spain, and the mass movement that led to the momentary success of Syriza in Greece. This degradation can be seen also in a comparison of the leading females of the original trilogy and this new iteration. Carrie Fisher's Princess Leia battled and was a rallying figure around opposition to the fascist Darth Vader and the Death Star. The leading female figure in The Mandalorian was the now-fired Gina Carano's Cara Dune, a gun-toting warrior on-screen and off-screen a Trump supporter and former wrestler known for her viciousness in the ring. Carano, now one of the world's most popular celebrities and a tweeter of racist, anti-democratic, and pro-COVID positions, was the Princess Leia of a broken-down generation, buffeted about by the neglect of an ever-greedier capitalism, and hardened not so much to resist that neglect, but to survive it in whatever way possible, and not excluding the embracing of fascism. The trimmings of The Mandalorian, though, couldn't have been cleverer, with the musical theme a combination of both John Williams' Star Wars majesty intermingled with the ominously tense strands of Ennio Marconi's the themes for the Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns. The weekly trip to another planet was borrowed from the original Star Trek, as were the end credit freeze frames of action in the episode. Season two began as more of the same, but as the quest to find Baby Yoda's home took center stage, the show slowly, and then more frenetically, drew in components and characters from the extended Star Wars world, or as it's called using the Marvel example, the Star Wars universe. These included the bounty hunter Baba Fett from the original trilogy, but also from the second, mostly unsuccessful, prequel trilogy, and Rosario Dawson's female Jedi Ashoka, a voiceover in the last episode of the most current trilogy, and one of the stars of the animated series Star Wars The Clone Wars, a character fleshed out in that series by Dave Filoni, co-creator of The Mandalorian. The ultimate inclusion, though, was the surprise at the end of the series with the reappearance of the first trilogy's key character, Luke Skywalker, played by a reanimated and youthful Mark Hamill, arranged by both the digital reverse aging technique used by Scorsese for De Niro, Pacino, and Pesci in The Irishman, and a mounting of Hamill's face on a contemporary body. The move was heralded by Star Wars fans as a crowning touch in the acceptance of the series into the extended universe with its creator George Lucas now being whispered as himself part of season three. Of course, it was something else, too, and that was a gigantic lure for the Disney Plus streaming service, which has produced little original content and which has now used this hit as a launching pad for nine new Star Wars series. The company has had to move more actively and rapidly into streaming as other parts of the Empire, specifically its theatrical films, amusement parks, and cruise ships, falter due to the virus. Disney is all about synergy, that is, with one part of the company interacting and promoting another. Thus, having bought the Star Wars franchise, not only did the film beget the series, but Disney is also borrowing the concept of the universe from another company it now owns, Marvel, as well as crossing personnel from the two universes. Thus, the upcoming series, The Book of Baba Fett, will co-star as the outlaws, sidekick Fennec Shand, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s Ming-Na Wen. Elsewhere, Marvel guru, studio chief, and keeper of the universe flame, Kevin Feige, is developing a new Star Wars movie which will supposedly extend into infinity the new universe. Each of these series and films, of course, will also be designed to generate cuddly figurines as both toys and collectibles so that the commercial reach of these shows and films extends beyond the screen. There's something else going on here besides mass merchandising, though. The limiting of creativity, even in this overly commercialized product, so that the show in season two begins to fold into itself and collapse into an already established pattern and constellation, is an indication of a culture that is eating itself. 
More than carnivore, the show is now emblematic of an autophagic or self-consuming culture that quickly extinguishes any spark of the new by folding it back into the tried and comfortable and in that way annihilating it. As such, the journey of the Mandalorian is not so different from that of the country itself. A once powerful manufacturing juggernaut, the U.S. has now been utterly hollowed out so that manufacturing or making stuff accounts for only one in 20 businesses and one-ninth of the workforce, as opposed to after World War II, where one-third of the workforce was employed in factories. The art of producing material goods has been replaced by the symbolic economies of finance, entertainment, and the digital, with the only real manufacturing being done in weapons construction, in the sale of which the U.S. leads the world. Instead, Manufacturing has fled to China and other parts of Asia, so that by December of last year, China, back at nearly full capacity after recovering from the coronavirus, had a record trade surplus of $75 billion. Over $50 billion of that figure consisted of exports to the U.S., where stay-at-home consumers were eagerly buying up Chinese-made home fixtures and toys for Christmas, including the aforementioned Hasbro Baby Yoda doll, manufactured in a Chinese factory. This hollowness or emptiness at the core of the society reflected in the entertainment complex as lack of innovation, so that any spark of creativity must quickly fold back into established patterns, is at play also in the finance industry, in the form of stock buybacks. After the 2008 financial collapse and continuing with the COVID aid to American banks, insurance agencies, and investment firms, Instead of investing in the society as a whole and, or in innovating in their firm, the financial sector bolstered their position by using the money to repurchase shares in their own often faltering companies, resulting in zero gain for the society as a whole, but enormous profits for their own shareholders, since the stock value is now artificially increased. The rationale for propping up this zombie culture was, we don't see any better investment than in ourselves a phrase which reaffirms their greed and lack of interest in the society as a whole. This is where much of the money from Trump's tax cuts for the wealthiest, supposedly designed to trickle down to the rest of the society, went, with over $806 billion in buybacks in 2018 after the 2017 tax cut. In that year, only 43% of the 500 wealthiest companies spent any money, even a penny, on research and development while spending $4.3 trillion on propping themselves up in the market and enriching themselves. When these companies were recently challenged on the market by the Reddit traders using a failed brick-and-mortar company GameStop to wage war on the established hedge funds, this popular mass of traders, separate from the established Wall Street cronies, ended their communiques with the Mandalorian phrase, This is the way. And indeed, it was the way for a season, that is, before the show finally folded in on itself and became part of the same carnivore culture so rampant in the industrial and financial worlds. As the stakes increase for the streaming services, they move as well to squelch innovation. Witness HBO Max's return of Sex in the City, as well as a redo of Gossip Girl and a Friends reunion special to announce the return of that series to the AT&T Fold, where it is designed to bolster fading HBO Max subscriptions. While the right worries about cancel culture, and the left ought to because the great unwashed neoliberal middle will be coming for progressives next, the bland corporate elite produces a carnivore culture by feasting on what is left of the carcass of a once-thriving entertainment and economic complex. In this new chasing after the last vestige of abundance in a fading financial structure, the promise of plenitude that begat the streaming era has ceded to the kind of remake and redo policy that has driven the Hollywood film industry. If the monoliths of HBO, AT&T, and Disney prevail, this lack of innovation in a culture feeding on itself will become the dominant. With American corporate and conglomerate capital, unfortunately, this is the way. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, signing off. And next on Arts Express... You know, Woody Guthrie wrote on the face of his guitar, This machine kills fascists. <laughs> Pete Seeger wrote on the head of his banjo, This machine surrounds hate and forces it to surrender. And I say, This machine speaks truth to power. Whoa. This machine saves baby seals. Whoa. whoa. Machines sense fear and ignorance to their certain doom. 
this pristine drive neocon, jingoistic, warmongering, xenophobic crypto fascists from the room. This machine is the bell of freedom at the end of class. This machine is the hammer of justice and the can opener of whoop ass. This machine has a liberal bias, as you might assume. This machine drive neocon, jingoistic, warmongering, theocratic, full populist, xenophobic, crypto fascists from the room. Yes, it's all about bringing people together. <laughs> bringing all kinds of people together. Hi, this is Jack Shalom with part two of our interview with singer-songwriter Roy Zimmerman. Last week in part one, we talked with Roy mainly about his satirical songs. But this week in part two, the conversation takes a turn as we talk about Roy's more serious compositions. Dare I ask you what songs that you think to yourself, I really did something extra special there? Well, there, I mean, there are songs certainly that I'm proud of, but you know, not even necessarily because of what I did or what we did, but because of the response that they bring out in people. Because we come to realize that these songs aren't sung at people. They're sung mm -hmm. because of people. And that came from the touring, too. All the people we talked to, all the people who were doing great work, what ministers to their needs? <laughs> people have needs. They have emotional needs that, that arise around political issues. Some of these needs are to laugh, you know, and to take it a little less seriously, to get some perspective on it. That's what the satirical songs are for. And some of these needs are deeply felt trauma. Truly. I mean, the Trump years were traumatic, you know, so there are people whose, whose needs are met in some ways better by music than by conversation or, or talking heads or whatever else they, they might turn to. You know, there's, there's a music has a way of a insidious way, really, of kind of getting behind that emotional response. Interesting that you're talking about that, because I was I was thinking today about some of my favorite songwriters and who you reminded me about. And for some reason, John Prine kept coming up. And I said, no, Jack, that's ridiculous. He's nothing like John Prine. But I think you've hit it. What I'm responding to is that you and John Prine engender such a response in the audience and seem to you know, fulfill some important emotional need. I love that comparison. I obviously love John Prine. And we're so, so sorry to, to see him pass. The things that I would be most thankful for the comparison for, I guess. To one, he's not afraid to take a big left turn in a song. Yes. <laughs> you know, right? Yes, song's about one thing and turns into a, mm -hmm. a completely different thing. That's amazing. And to, and to draw an incredible amount of information into a short line, into a short, mm -hmm. ostensibly simple line. You know, daddy's got a hole in his arm where all the money goes. Oh, my yeah, God. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, my God. <laughs> Those are my favorite songs of yours. My favorite two songs of yours are Thanks for the Support and DWB. And those are both songs that start off a little humorously. Uh -huh. And then the audience realizes, uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't have laughed um, because they turn serious and then hit you in the gut. Yeah, I, well, thank you for that observation, but that that is exactly right. How do you deal with subject matter like that? those two songs deal with? Can you talk a little bit more about the circumstances around writing each of those songs? Sure. Thanks for the support. You know, that was a rhetorical support that the Bush administration was showing for the, the young men and women who were sent over to Iraq in that incredible misadventure, unbelievable, painful misadventure that were never backed up by policy. Just it was just cynical talk, you know, all that support and all the yellow ribbons and all the SUVs driving around with yellow ribbons and so forth. The irony of that song is bitter. So it's a satirical song. And I've often said that, you know, that satire is the form of comedy that isn't funny. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> you're dealing with that kind of subject matter. And so you're drawing these very stark uh, juxtapositions between what is said and what is done. That was what the impetus for that song. And you sent me here a third time. My house was repossessed. Thanks for the support. Now my wife is in a trailer, but she sent a Kevlar vest. Thanks for the support. And I think of her only every time I bleed. Someday we will meet again and walk. Of last resort. 
that song started out much funnier. It started out much funnier. And, and, uh, as Melanie and I reworked that song, you know, we realized, uh, we, we should take it in a different direction and not again, not just us saying this to people, but hearing this from people, that's the attempt anyway, to, to write a song that, that, uh, ministers to that emotional need. And the same with DWB. If you want to write a song about black lives matter from the point of view of admittedly a left coast, you know, white uh, suburban snowflake <laughs> like myself. Uh-huh. What is the best way into that subject matter that truly allies your you with the cause, the the real cause of that? And so it it isn't necessarily funny, and it isn't necessarily preachy. So you got to like walk that uh, that gamut. I found myself increasingly frustrated and angry and, and uh, confused about the response uh, that America was having to black men in particular being killed on the streets. Uh, and we should point out that wasn't just written yesterday. It wasn't in response to George Floyd. No, no, certainly not. You know, it goes back Trayvon Martin and, uh, and Eric Garner and before that, you know, so, so there are references in there to all of those things. But and yet I tried to keep it broad enough to, to make the, the phenomenon the thing we we're talking about, not any one particular incident. I pulled you over because you were speeding. Do you know how black you were going? I had you clocked at 50 miles per black. In a 45 blacks per hour zone I'll be a ride black When I've run your license Just sit black and relax Step out of the vehicle, son Come with me Gonna book you on ADWB Put your hands up so naturally I thought you had a gun up there Hidden somewhere in midair And you said don't shoot You tried to flee Which I took as an attack Shot you five times in the back I chased you down You had a pocket knife Thought you might be joining the Swiss Army Or stealing Skittles Or selling cigarettes Or otherwise compromising Western civilization Oh, you can't breathe No, you can't breathe you can't breathe, you can't breathe. You're really outstanding as a musician and as a composer and lyricist, but also as a singer. The other point about that, huh. Jack, too, that relates to the theatricality of the songs is that yes. uh, we believe that a song should go someplace. 
And that's not, you know, that's not what the, what a pop song calls for. I mean, you can write a great pop song and, it, and it, you've uh, expressed a thought. You've expressed it well over the course of three and a half minutes. But these songs, hysterical songs and, and theatrical songs in general, should end up in a different place than they started. And they should get funnier. They should, they should get angrier. They should, they should take you someplace that you weren't when you began, when you began the song. Wow, what a wonderful lesson for songwriters. Hmm. That's fantastic. I have to ask you more about your videos now that you've kind of uh, switched over because of COVID to the video world. You know, if you go to YouTube, you can see Roy uh, delivering some of his musical postcards from the various states. And often you're in a scenic environment that's representative of the state. You and Melanie did a great version of Marty Robbins' El Paso, not, not oh, yeah, a satirical was... song, but that was a wonderful uh, take. That was big fun. And I wanted to feature Melanie's guitar playing too, because she's so excellent. Yeah. So that was a good vehicle for her to show off to in, you know. Bellino is strong and I rise where I've fallen. Though I am weary, I can't give up hope. I see the white puff of smoke from the rifle. Now I am certain they've chosen a pole. From out of nowhere, Felina has found me, kissing my cheek as she kneels by my side. Cradled by true love in arms that I'd die for, one little kiss and Felina, goodbye. You have a song called Drain the Swamp. Well, at the beginning of that video, you emerge... From the swamp. Did you really do that? I really did that. Oh, yeah. You can, we can't green screen that. Fully clothed. Yes. Thanks for pointing that out. I mean, you need to have that arresting beginning. That's the thing about social media. You need to catch them in the first 15 seconds. So that was our way of doing that in that video, was, was me just coming screaming from the swamp. <laughs> Drain the swamp. What did you use as your swamp? Uh, we had, here in Lake County, there are some very swampy areas. So we found a day, even in this winter quarantined isolation, we found a day when we'd go out there and submerge me for a second and a half until the water got calm on, on top and then I'm bursting out. Oh my gosh, you really did that. Yeah, I love that question. But how did you do that? Well, I, I did it. <laughs> and that's my secret. That's great. And you're doing a series of virtual events called Live from the Left Coast. Thank you, you for bringing that? that up. Yes, that is how we're, uh, we're putting these songs out there is by these live online kind of shows. The best way to find out about that is to go to my website, RoyZimmerman.com. They're prominently featured on the front page there. Great. Well, now that Trump is out of office, besides all the one million and one reasons, I'm <laughs> glad because I can't wait for the return of Roy Zimmerman non-Trump songs. Yeah. Not, not that the Trump songs weren't clever and useful. But there's a whole uh, upcoming generation that needs to hear your other songs as well. You and me both. We <laughs> didn't know what to do with Trump, Jack. I mean, that's that's the thing. When he was first elected, we had to pick our jaws up off the floor, <laughs> yeah. right, and, and just and go like, okay, now now what do we do with this? Because how do you write a song more absurd than Donald Trump is our president? And I don't think we ever succeeded in writing something more <laughs> absurd than that. We just sort of quoted him and put it to you know put a meter scheme and a rhyme scheme on it. As we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add, Roy? I want to add a word about Ann Feeney. Ann Feeney passed away the other day. Uh, we lost her to COVID, very unfortunately. She's, she was an amazing spirit, amazing activist, an amazing songwriter, and a kind of a, a real light in this world. And so I want to uh, just mention that. I'm, she covered a song of ours called Defenders of Marriage. It was a song mm -hmm. written now 20-something-odd years ago, you know, about, uh, about marriage equality. She covered this song. This is a question, too, that, that comes up. Does your satire change anybody's mind? Right? You know, no. Nobody <laughs> wants their mind changed, you know. But it did happen. It does happen. And it's amazing when it does. And she, you know, she often used to tell a story about doing that song, Defenders of Marriage, to somebody who was, like, really razzing her and, and not, you know, not accepting the, the song's premise and so forth, who a couple months later came up to her and said, you know, I've, I've thought about your song and it changed my mind. So oh, wow. we love hearing that. That's wonderful. Anything else you'd like to add? 
uh, just go to the website, RoyZimmerman.com, and uh, check out these shows. And, and you can sign up for the mailing list, too, which is a good way to know about new songs that we're doing and new videos that might involve your participation. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Well, Roy Zimmerman, uh, COVID or not, Donald Trump or not, I suspect you'll be around for a long while more. As you once said, as long as there's poverty, war, bigotry, ignorance, greed, lust, and paranoia, I've got a career. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much, Roy. You bet, Jack. Thank you very much. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Every time we think about same-sex marriage, it makes us sick to our guts. I mean, to people who want to commit to a stable, monogamous, lifelong relationship, what are they, nuts? It's unnatural. Now a man should not lie with a person who is a guy. He should only lie to his wife. The Bible is clear. We're defenders of marriage in three button suits. We'll raise our double standard and see who salutes. Defenders of marriage, defending the institution against people who want to get married. <laughs> Every time we think about same-sex parents, Oh my gosh, we exclaim. I mean, to people who want to provide a protective and nurturing family environment, have they no shame? It's so deviant. It's the Lord's holy word, as my second wife said to my third. <laughs> that a family's based on obligation and fear. We're defenders of marriage, connubial narcs, ever vigilant and patriotic patriarchs. Defenders of marriage, defending the institution against people who want to get married and have their insurance carried and be beneficiaried and be next to the ones they love when they are buried. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it now Just you and me